Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to a uh, Longwoods Leadership Discussion, uh, Path to High-Quality Respiratory Care for Canadians Living with Asthma. Yeah. To guide us through today, I would like to welcome Carly Weeks, a health reporter for the Globe and Mail. Carly, it's all yours. Thank you very much. I am so pleased to be here today uh, to help with this discussion, a very important one that's close to so many Canadians, uh, more than 4 million Canadians who are currently living with asthma. Um, and as we've all seen during the course of the pandemic, you know, healthcare is under strain and it is very difficult for people to get the high quality care that they need, the timely access to care. And despite our healthcare professionals, you know, working as hard as they can, um, this system is often not working for patients and their loved ones. Um, we've had a minor technical issue off the very top, but I believe that um, the patient advocate who's going to be sharing his story is here and available to speak. So I'm very pleased to pass the, the microphone to Ian Fearon, who's going to share the story of his daughter, Amanda. And before we get into a larger discussion about what has been happening with patients who have asthma and how we can better serve them and some of the research that's going on to do just that. So Ian, if you can hear us and if the audio is working, I would be happy to pass it to you right now to help share some of the highlights of your daughter's story and what you hope we can learn from it. Thank, thank you, Carly, and I apologize for the the glitch. Can, can you hear me? We can hear you. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, thank you also to Asthma Canada for letting me tell Amanda's story. It's emotional for me, and the only way I can get through it is to use my computer screen as a teleprompter. So. Please bear with me. I've been living with asthma all my life. So naturally, when our daughter was born, I was worried that she would inherit it from me. For almost 30 years, Amanda showed no symptoms. She grew into a healthy, successful young woman. Six months after she married, Amanda had her first asthma attack. She was hospitalized, put on a ventilator for a few hours, then sent home with a prescription for oral steroids. Amanda was hospitalized three more times and was sent home each time with a new prescription for steroids. For years, she hid her symptoms because she didn't want us to worry. That's something that's very common among asthmatics. We don't want you to see us as victims, as the chubby little kid with the Coca-Cola glasses using our rescue inhaler every few minutes. Amanda eventually confided that there was a lot of stress in your marriage. And when our grandson was born, the stress increased and she made the difficult decision to start a new life with Ethan. Working from home during COVID while looking after a young child on her own only added to her stress. Then she met Gary. He's second in command of the paramedics in Orangeville. He's also an air medic. If you get sick while you're on vacation in Cuba, Gary is the guy that flies down and brings you home. Amanda was hospitalized again in January of last year and was sent home to wait for an appointment with an asthma specialist. Last March 17th, St. Patrick's Day was unseasonably warm in Orangeville, 20 degrees Celsius, so Amanda took her dog scout for a walk. Because it was such a nice day, a short walk, and because her inhaler wasn't working, she didn't take it with her. At 11 o'clock that night, 
two police officers and Amanda's best friends knocked on our door. Amanda had collapsed on the sidewalk during the walk. She had texted Gary, I can't breathe. When the 911 call came, Gary knew who it was and exactly where she would be. He got to Amanda before the ambulance, gave her an EpiPen and a Ventolin, but couldn't save her. Amanda was 36 years old. The next day, Amanda's specialist appointment letter arrived in the mail. It was for two months after she passed. The system failed Amanda. Her doctor failed her by continuing to prescribe oral steroids for years, even though they weren't working. Her pharmacist failed her by renewing her steroids more frequently than normal. The hospital staff failed her by not addressing the fact that she had been hospitalized four times for acute asthma. The system failed her by putting her on a waiting list for months when she should have been seen immediately. There is no current cure for asthma, but maybe by telling Amanda's story, I can raise, I can raise the awareness and she could help us find one. Thank you. Ian, thank you so much for sharing uh, your daughter's story. It is so heartbreaking. And um, I think just a, a, not only a testament to your family's love for Amanda, um, but just how frustrating the struggle is for so many. Um, I'm going to pass this now to, to Jeff Beach, the um, President and CEO of Asthma Canada, to talk about some of the research that's been done um, in this area, and, and then we will lead into a further discussion. Jeff. Thank you so much, Carly. And uh, Ian, I'd like to also thank you for sharing Amanda's story with us today. As a parent myself, I can't imagine uh, the strength and the courage that it took for you to join us in this forum and share your daughter's story. And um, we're so grateful for your advocacy and the strong desire and the dedication that I know you have to driving change and turning Amanda's uh, tragic story into something positive for the millions of Canadians that live with asthma. So thanks again, Ian. Amanda's story, Amanda's story really does illustrate the need to address factors that lead to many Canadians living with uncontrolled asthma, including long wait times to access specialist care, over-reliance on rescue inhalers, and other factors that are signs that asthma is not under control when many patients think it is. Just recently, I was in Ottawa a couple of weekends ago, participating in a memorial walk for Rudro Prince, who was an eight-year-old boy that lived with asthma. Rudro's family spent weeks every year in hospital emergency rooms due to asthma exacerbations. He passed away due to severe asthma after an asthma attack in 2018. As the national voice for people living with asthma here in Canada, we hear from so many other patients who are struggling to access appropriate respiratory care. This is why Asthma Canada joined a national steering group to develop the first Canadian stakeholder consensus for diagnosis, appropriate referral, and treatment of severe asthma. The recommendations from the study, some of which we'll be discussing, discussing here today, provide solutions to these challenges. Canadians living with asthma are experiencing every day. In this work, more than 150 respirologists, allergists, family physicians, nurses, pharmacists, and respiratory therapists from across the country weighed in on the recommendations you will see highlighted in the study. This includes exploring and investing in an enhanced role for CRAs or Certified Respiratory Educators, 
who can work with primary care providers and specialists to support patients resulting in better asthma management and control. Having access to a CRE could have helped support Amanda as she was waiting to see her specialist and helped Rudro and Rudro's family with better asthma management and education. It would also mean their asthma would have been proactively identified as uncontrolled and given care providers the critical information that they need for better treatment management. Rudro's family, as I mentioned before, would spend weeks every year in an emergency room and there was no clear pathway for them to get care elsewhere. This led to them going back to the emergency department repeatedly due to exacerbations and Rudro not getting the care that he needed closer to home. A consistent pathway for care and referral would have made a huge difference, especially at a time when our hospitals and emergency rooms are strained due to limited capacity and health human resource issues. We wanna see our community have good management and care outside of having to visit an emergency department. We are grateful to have our panelists here today to provide their perspectives and dig into some of these recommendations further. I wanna thank you again to everyone who's listening live and those that may be viewing a recording of this session. And we hope that this discussion will lead to much needed collaboration between health policymakers and those who work within our health system to address the gaps in asthma care. I'd now like to pass it back to Carly, who will introduce our panelists and kick off the discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was a really important context uh, for the rest of our discussion. I'm really pleased to introduce this panel um, who are going to be able to address some of the main major issues we've already touched on. Uh, first, I will introduce Dr. Christopher Lipsha, CEO of Best Care and Primary Care and Assistant Professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Western Ontario. Thank you so much for being here. I will also be introducing Dr. Mohit Bhutani, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Medicine at the University of Alberta. Uh, also, we have with us Dr. Samir Gupta, a respirologist and clinician scientist at Unity Health in Toronto. And of course, we also have with us Ian, who is going to um, touch on some of the aspects of the story that he, we've already heard on today. So thanks everyone for being here. Um, you know, I think what really is, is so striking after hearing comments from Ian and from Jeff as well, um, is just how glaring some of these gaps are in terms of the, the care or lack of care that people with asthma are receiving. So perhaps, um, you know, Dr. Bhutani and Dr. Uh, Lipsha, if you wanna maybe first address this, um, why is it so hard for people with asthma to get the care that they need right now what are the gaps that you see sort of on the day-to-day? -day, um, and then how do we start to address them? I know those are huge questions, um, but yeah, just um, uh, feel free to take away whoever wants to jump in first. Chris, did you want to start? Sure, let me let me start and, sure. and then um, please, uh, please join. I think the, Maybe the initial approach to trying to answer your question, Carly, is really to think about the system. I think when Ian was um, sharing Amanda's story, he really did highlight that there are system and capacity related issues that need to be addressed in order to better manage patients with uh, with asthma. Um, I think that tragic story highlights the role for specialty care and from some of the newer treatments that we have 
that can really make a difference in the lives of people with severe and uncontrolled asthma. But it also, I think, highlights the opportunity and the role for uh, the broader system. Patients like Amanda are cared for largely in primary care. And so there's a need to, in primary care, have mechanisms, standardized mechanisms for identifying people who are at the highest risk, who have the most need, people like Amanda, whose uh, disease is severe and uncontrolled. So, uh, and further, I guess, thinking with a system hat on, primary care is where most of the asthma care is provided. So we need to strengthen the primary care health system for patients with chronic respiratory disease and, um, you know, hasten and speed the pipeline to specialty care for people that really need it. And one of the recommendations that came very clearly through the consensus document uh, that Jeff was discussing is the role for certified respiratory educators and case managers to support and empower primary care docs to uh, uh, primary care physicians and nurse practitioners to identify uh, those patients who have the greatest need. So I guess I'm gonna encourage everyone to put a system-based hat on and think about you know, where the capacity issues and where some of the gaps are. So just to add to that, I think those are excellent uh, comments, Chris. Um, I, I think part of the issue when it comes to asthma is that there's an underappreciation of the burden that this disease has on the patient and on the health system itself. And I think we need to raise that awareness and that's a responsibility upon us. And we've got uh, events like this from Asthma Canada. Uh, I'm the current president of the Canadian Thoracic Society and we're doing our work to help raise the awareness of, um, of asthma in general. Uh, I think the pandemic was a was a real opportunity, and I want to say to never let a good pandemic go to waste to raise the awareness of this because we realized that patients who had uh, COVID and had coexisting asthma were more likely to be hospitalized and to have more deleterious effects of the of the uh, of the virus itself. So we need to raise the awareness because the appreciation of um, the use of steroids and, and oral steroids in particular within primary care is that this is just the natural trajectory of this disease. And it, it doesn't have to be that way. And we need to change that awareness. This is an outpatient uh, condition. In Alberta, pre-pandemic, we had on average 20,000 hospitalizations, emergency department visits per year for four or five years before the pandemic. I would argue that every one of those were probably preventable. And as we go into uh, the, you know, the triple threat season with RSV, with COVID, with flu, um, these patients are at risk to be hospitalized in a system that's already you know, busting at the seams or bursting at the seams. Um, this is, in my opinion, low-hanging fruit that we should address to try to help improve uh, outcomes for the patient and for the system. Thank you so much for that. Um, Dr. Gupta, I'll ask you to jump in now. I mean, We've heard, uh, you know, some of the recommendations that were outlined in the report, and and I think that you know, for so many of us who are who are watching some of these um, tragedies unfold in healthcare, we we do feel very powerless. Yet at the same time, we know there's things that can and should be done to make things better. So, you know, we're talking about something that is an outpatient condition, um, and I promise I will get to a question. You know, I think that in some ways, you know, we're very good at helping people who are hospitalized in Canada, but we are not very good at helping people who are trying to manage on their own, right? People with chronic conditions who are living in the community. 
So I'm just wondering if you can touch on, you know, at a time when we are experiencing healthcare shortages, an overwhelmed system, you know, what would be sort of your, your, you know, pitch to policymakers on the urgency behind doing some of these necessary changes and getting some of these respiratory um, uh, pieces, you know, making this part of people's ongoing care um, in the community. What's the urgent message to policymakers and how can we start to really make these fixes so that we can prevent future tragedies from happening? Yeah, I think some of the points that we've already heard are, are really important in that there is an under-recognition of burden among population in general and among policymakers. I think also there's there's this approach of with asthma in particular um, in that we often are just putting out fires. Uh, you know, we heard in Amanda's story that she would come in really sick and she would leave with a course of oral steroids. And that's that's putting out a fire, but it's not preventing the next fire. You know, preventing the next fire is... Uh, empowering our primary care structure to have her on the right therapies chronically and to have her see specialists in a timely way, and in, in her case, a case of severe asthma and really needing that specialty care. And so I think one of the messages there is that this is a very burdensome disease, and we have a healthcare system that's in crisis largely because it's underfunded. So I think part of the argument, to be fair, is to say, here are the financial burdens of this disease, and we need a strong economic argument to say that these kinds of investments will yield commensurate cost savings on the side of you know, how expensive it is for the health system. When comes, people come into the emergency room, people get admitted to hospital, and people end up on medicines that they didn't necessarily have to be on if we prevented things to begin with. So I think we have to start frame shifting and, and advocate, but also advocate in the context of recognizing that we have a very limited healthcare envelope. We spend on one disease, we take away from another. So how can we make the argument, and I think we can effectively make the argument, that there's also an economic case that the health system, not only will people do better, patients will feel better, but the health system will be neutral or may even save money if we do the right things by thinking prevention instead of just putting out those fires. I think that's such an excellent point. And we've seen that borne out in so much research, whether it's asthma or other chronic conditions, that if you are putting money in the front end in primary care, which you know has been so chronically underfunded for so long, that we will end up saving money and you will be able to, you know, help patients. That's the most important part, you know, improving patient outcomes. And instead of just this sort of idea of, you know, putting out the fires when people show up in the hospital who are who are in crisis. And I'd, I'd like to bring you into this discussion and ask from from the position of someone who saw this play out um, and saw sort of this, you know, a, a patient, your daughter going from crisis to crisis um, to ultimate tragedy. How do you think that some of these changes could perhaps have helped prevented this? What you would like to see implemented um, to really fix this system once and for all? Uh, thank you again, Carly. Uh, I've been researching asthma for the last year or so to better educate myself. Canada's healthcare system is complex and for a layperson like me, it can be very confusing. I want to thank Asthma Canada and Jeff in particular for patiently walking me, <clears throat> excuse me, through the system and answering my questions. I took a lot of notes and I hope you'll forgive me if I refer to those notes. The message and the work being done are too important to overlook. As I mentioned, our healthcare system is complex 
and we'll always need more resources. When we don't have enough resources, we need to prioritize. Our number, <clears throat> excuse me again, our number one priority must be to determine high risk, high risk patients, excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry, not used to public speaking. <laughs> uh, this, Sorry, uh, our number one priority must be to determine high-risk patients, fast-track their treatment, and make sure that they have support they need to help manage their asthma. The study recommendations are a good starting point, and I think we can do better, especially in how quickly a high-risk patient is referred to a specialist and the support they have throughout their asthma care journey. The study talks about the role that certified respiratory educators can play in supporting patients with severe asthma, working with their family doctors to help prevent worsening symptoms. There are currently about 1,500 CREs and 375 CAEs in Canada. In 2021, Asthma Canada reported that 19% <coughs> excuse me, 19% of the patients had difficulty in accessing an educator most of the time, and another 25% had difficulty some of the time. Patients living with asthma could greatly benefit from having access to this support. The study also calls for a constant pathway for referral to be in place with clearly defined criteria and an acceptable waiting time. It was unacceptable that Amanda was waiting that long to be able to get the care that she needed. Recognizing that there are many others out there living with asthma and waiting on a long waiting list to access the care they need, a constant care pathway with the defined criteria and acceptable wait times can also help inform decisions where patients need to be fast-tracked or seen quickly to help get their asthma under control while they continue to have access to certified respiratory educators for support. With Canada's complex health system, we need to prioritize and fully, fully utilize the resources we do have, like certified respiratory educators. Researchers and studies are wonderful, and they have led to many treatments, but they're time consuming and they're expensive. The study calls for the recommendations to be implemented by 2030. I worry about the 2,000 people we are going to lose between now and 2030 unless we change. Thank you, Carly. Thank you so much, Ian. And I think it's so valuable to hear um, from someone like yourself who's who's walked in, in those shoes, who has the experience of someone who's you know, who knows the stakes, what we're really talking about today. Um, I'll go Car back to, to our clinicians um, and ask you guys to weigh in. There's a lot of really great ideas. There's a lot of things we know will work. And I think there's so many people who are out there um, kind of like screaming with frustration. You know, why, why can we not take these ideas that we know will work and implement them? So I don't know who wants to, to, to go first, but I think that, you know, in your sort of view, what are the, the you know, so some of the barriers to implementation, how do we start to overcome them and is this realistic? 
Carly, can I just, um, I'll answer that question, but can I just piggyback on some of the things that uh, Ian just talked about? Please, you know, I think yeah. you, you've you you've heard uh, through Chris and you've heard through Samir, myself and Ian, that, you know, the rural certified respiratory educators is important. And I think one of the things we need to realize is that, you know, a collaborative care model for asthma care really needs to be, you know, prioritized. And, and this kind of piggybacks into the question you're just asking. Um, you know, we can, you know, primary care is under stress, right? We're, you know, there's a lot of uh, patients that don't have primary care access. Um, specialist care is is also quite busy. So um, the solutions have to be performed in a collaborative care model. And, and I think you've heard quite quite clearly that the CREs, both from the patient perspective and from, you know, the specialist perspective are, are important because they can be that, that partner that helps bridge the gaps to improve the long-term outcomes. And I think... Um, you know, for the people that are listening today, they must walk away with this concept because, yeah, we can put more money into primary care, but they already have a million other things to take care of. This collaborative care model needs to be implemented. We've seen it in other disease states, heart failure, diabetes, where the collaborative care model does improve outcomes. And I think we just want to make sure that we walk away with that, um, with this uh, with this conversation. So I'll maybe pass it over to Chris and Samir to comment on your question. I'll jump in then, uh, Samir. So I guess I was thinking about how to come back to your question, Carly. And um, so uh, I'm just thinking about this through my career um, um, from a professional perspective. And so in 2024, I will have been a respirologist for 30 years. And this is a challenge that has existed for many times. The role of certified respiratory educator case managers in the management of chronic respiratory disease is well known. They have and they can have a huge impact on, on health outcomes, including things that are important to patients, like not having an attack, like um, improving their symptoms, and things that are important to the health system like not being not having hospitalizations and emergency department visits we know the we know that certified educator case managers are part of the solution the challenge has been identifying innovative ways to make that happen i think you know policymakers decision makers that are at this session should also leave with the understanding that access to a certified respiratory educator in canada is um, uncommon. It is not the common mode of care. It's probably accessible to less than 5% of people that would have asthma. So it is a standard of care that has been clearly identified in national, international, and in uh, provincial standards, but which is currently not being met. And so um, that's an, uh, an area that we need innovative uh, solutions for. I, I did want to loop back, Carly, just to one other area around awareness. And I do think it um, relates to Amanda's story that, that Ian has just shared. And that is, asthma care has also transformed fundamentally in the last few years. We have access to new medications. Policymakers across the country have funded the newer asthma biologics. And for people with severe asthma, like Amanda, these treatments are absolutely transformative. And so uh, we have the opportunity to take somebody who uh, has recurrent attacks uh, with new medication and bring them to a point where they 
are in good control or perhaps even um, have a remission from their asthma symptoms. And so that's been an important policy change as well. There are pharmacologic innovations and important ones that can transform the future of patients with asthma. Uh, that's an important thing that has happened. And also, we need to advance a model of care that is um, effective at identifying those people so that they can be found, those high-risk people, and brought to care. Uh, and that in, in need, And for that, we need a primary care system where there are dedicated people focused on this, like certified educator case managers. I can um, pick up on some of those points. I think I think there are a couple of things for me that that really drive the message home. One is, you know, Ian mentioned this, and and then Chris mentioned the same thing that we have to identify the right patients who need that specialty care and who need those those specialized drugs. The reality is that is the tip of the iceberg. That is five to ten percent of people with asthma have severe asthma and will benefit from that. Everyone else. Um, is in a different category, but unfortunately, the vast majority of those other patients are also poorly controlled. If you look at some of the data, even Canadian data, this was a survey done by the Lung Health Foundation years ago, showed that 90% of prevalent asthmatics, 90, 9 out of 10 asthmatics in this country do not have good control of their disease. And so the challenge is when you have this many asthmatics and you know this many of them are poorly controlled, they have a tiny amount there that are severe, um, how do you identify the severe asthmatics among the poorly controlled asthmatics? And that's the number one challenge because we have a very limited capacity in specialty care to see these patients. And one of the frustrations for me, I want to see the severe asthmatics because the one thing I can do that primary care can't do is to get those patients on biologics and properly monitor them on biologics. But what I end up seeing is a lot of patients who are uncontrolled who do not have severe disease because they haven't been optimized according to guidelines, they haven't had their technique checked, they haven't had their adherence checked, they haven't had their triggers addressed, things that I wish were done in primary care. And not to sort of dump on primary care because they have a really tough job too, and they are understaffed and they are overworked. And so, you know, if we're going to successfully get those patients under control by following guidelines so that we can really identify those who remain poorly controlled, who truly have severe asthma for specialty care and for specialty drugs, we're going to need to strengthen the ability. And that means the knowledge, the time, the tools available to primary care to be able to optimize that care to get those uncontrolled patients under control. And that means all hands on deck, right? We don't have enough family docs. We lost twice the amount of family docs in the first six months of the pandemic compared to a typical six months any other time before that. And that just tells you how many people have left the primary care workforce. This is why there's a shortage. There's a structural problem in primary care. So when we say all hands on deck, we mean certified respiratory educators. We mean folks who can play that role and have that knowledge. I think I, I also think we should be talking about pharmacists. Pharmacists are a massive part of the healthcare human resource that we have in this country that is underutilized. In this in Ontario, where where I practice, pharmacists have just been empowered to do even more for minor ailments, um, and that is going to grow. They're they're portfolio of things they can do, their scope of practice is going to grow. In a place like Alberta, pharmacists can prescribe for any condition, minor ailment, acute illness, uh, severe illness, you know, chronic ailments, uh, et cetera. And it's underutilized, partly because they don't necessarily have the knowledge, the confidence, and the tools. So how can we empower that other part of the workforce? And if all of these pieces of the primary care puzzle can come together and be empowered to better manage asthma, all of a sudden, we really are identifying the truly severe asthmatics 
for specialty care. And now the wait time isn't six months, eight months, because specialty care is seeing the patients, you know, that smaller proportion of patients who truly need that specialty care. To, to piggyback on that, um, Samir, I, I work in Edmonton and Alberta is divided into what's called primary care networks. And we very much had the same problem you speak of, of seeing these patients that are uncontrolled rather than severe. So one particular primary care network called the Edmonton Southside Primary Care Network have invested in uh, three respiratory uh, educators, so asthma educators, and they are that that filter. So primary care, when it's a difficult to control asthmatic, they see them. Uh, the respiratory educator sees them. They filter through all the things that can be done at the grass at the grassroots, and then the ones that are truly severe are filtered up to our clinic. And it's helped, to your point, uh, streamline the care for those that have uncontrolled asthma, and then gets the people that need a specialist care up towards us. So there's a question that comes in here: Are there systems or places that are they're working to try to improve uh, that role and that collaboration with primary care? Uh, we've got one here, and, and that's why I say it's a collaborative model that needs to be put together. If I could interject just for one second, oh, yeah, please. Uh, please. I, I can remember when I was first being tested for asthma. I, I don't remember how long I was on the waiting list. It doesn't really matter. But it would have bothered me tremendously if, as a mild asthmatic, I was taking the place of somebody with acute asthma simply because the primary care people that saw that patient for the first time didn't fast track the acute asthmatic. And the point that I've been trying to understand and trying to advocate from since I first became involved with Asthma Canada is we need to find a way to get the primary people to fast track acute patients. Even if it means uh, referring uh, an acute patient that takes somebody else's place in line. So someone that is a mild or moderate asthmatic maybe has to come back the next day so that we can make room for the acute patient. And that's the thing that, that I have tried to get my head around ever since I started researching asthma and, and trying to understand it. So I, I think we need front-end education, if you like, of the primary people who are seeing the patients for the first time to say, hey, this is an acute patient. I need to get this patient to a specialist just as fast as they can. And if that means pushing them to the head of the line tomorrow or the next day, then that's what we need to do. We need to advocate for that patient. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Um, I think you guys have all raised some really important um, points of discussion. I wanted just to remind everyone who's here, we will be um, dedicating the last portion of this to questions. So please, if you do have any, please send those in. Um, and there is one question that was kind of on my mind that, that's come in. Um, so, you know, it, I'll kind of combine it with the one that I was thinking of. I mean, so if we know that there is sort of a really uh, difficult challenge in, in getting the truly severe cases to the specialists and then helping um, everyone else kind of get to the point where they're able to, you know, control their symptoms. And, you know, so optimizing care for all patients, I guess, is, is sort of what we're speaking about. You know, are there areas of, you know, we heard about the Alberta example. Um, are there other examples or models, whether it's Canada or elsewhere, where that kind of solution has been implemented with really great results where you're having sort of that, um, you know, optimized care team 
helping ensure that patients are getting the, the, you know, the direct level of care that they need that's appropriate for their disease state. Um, I'm not sure who, if anyone wants to jump in there, but just any examples beyond sort of, um, you know, the, the, the success from Alberta. But I do want to take the opportunity to jump in there, Carly, and talk a bit about uh, the best care and primary care program. Um, I have a leadership role in, in this uh, initiative. Um, I was excited to see the consensus document come out with such a powerful recommendation about the role of certified educator case managers in supporting primary care docs, um, because it does align with the best care and primary care program. I just maybe provide a couple of thoughts of background before I tell you more about the program. I know that uh, for the panelists on uh, uh, Mohit, Samir and I, we have all been very involved in the creation of uh, clinical practice guidelines, in the creation of national standards for managing people with a lung disease. So working on synthesizing the best available evidence, adapting that to the Canadian context, and making recommendations to our colleagues, to the health system around what is the standard of care for asthma or COPD or other chronic conditions. That's the first part of a big challenge, identifying what the standards are. The very substantial next component is how do we implement those in our health system? That is the enduring challenge. That is 30 year challenge that I have been working on. And so over the last, um, in particular over the last decade, working with primary care providers, we did create the best care and primary care program, which embeds certified respiratory educator case managers into primary care practices. We recognize that primary care does the heavy lifting for all chronic diseases. And that if we want to introduce team-based care for respiratory conditions, we need to have certified respiratory educator case managers to be a part of that. It is a capacity issue, a health human resources issue that requires a solution. And so the educator case managers are leaders. They work to convert a reactive care to more proactive preventive care. They're looking for the high-risk people that Ian says we should be looking for. Who are the people that have the greatest need? Bring them into care. And our educator case managers are guideline experts. They know what the best practices are, and they work in collaboration with and under the supervision of primary care docs um, uh, and nurse practitioners to deliver those recommendations. It's very standardized, it aligns with the guidelines, and it's meant to improve patient outcomes and health system performance. Wearing uh, you know, the clinician hat, this is the kind of practice model that I want to work in, and about 100% of the primary care providers that we approach want this type of model. Last year, we had 1,100 primary care docs working with us to make this model of care a reality. We have programs for asthma and COPD and heart failure. And the commitment that I'll make uh, to this panel is as we move forward into the fall, we will test, we will finish the creation of and test a severe asthma module um, um, that we would hope to move out through our current network. It is a leading program in the world, I would say, and 
uh, to answer the question that was posed online, are there others that are doing this very well? Uh, there are other examples of important programs that um, have embraced the concept, but I think in Canada, there is an opportunity for us to really lead in ways that could change the care of asthma across the country, but also globally. Does anyone else want to jump in there before we move on? Carly, I just um, to to give the question around, you know, what are all other health systems doing? The sort of poster child for a health system that has has done wonders with asthma care is the, is Finland. Uh, Finland, between 1994 and 2004, launched the the Finnish asthma program, which is sort of much talked about and and many times has been tried to be emulated and has been much studied. But in that 10-year period, they decreased the proportion of patients in that country with poorly controlled asthma by 90%, um, despite that they identified many more asthmatics and got many more asthmatics on treatment, they dropped their annual asthma costs by over 100 million euros. Uh, and this is a small country. This is a, the, the whole country is smaller in population than Ontario. So uh, coming back to this financial piece, we can really make an argument with health system payers who have a limited envelope, right? We have to recognize that, that doing things right can actually save the system money. And they're, you know, what they did is, is complex what they did, but fundamentally it breaks down to what we call an integrated care pathway, which is very much what we're talking about today, which is empowering specialists to work with primary care and empowering primary care uh, with the tools they need for early identification of disease and to very quickly and efficiently get patients on drugs. Um, and so that I think is a really good example of a national program that has been really successful and has measured successful, demonstrated successful outcomes uh, that, that you know, we can take pieces from and we can learn from. I think that's a really important point, uh, Samir, and the fact that for those who are listening on this, that the the principles and the tips programs exist. Um, and so the, we don't have to go back to the well and reinvent the wheel here. We have to, we, we have good principles in play that can be implemented right away. And, and to Samir's point, you know, a dollar invested will result in money saved on the back end. And, and I can guarantee that to, even to the point of, you know, talking about the biologics that uh, Chris spoke about earlier, expensive medications, but if we can really triage and make sure that the right people get on that medicine, then you're, you know, then your budget from that perspective gets saved. So there's lots of inherent value uh, that, you know, when you invest in this process of integrated or collaborative care. I'm going to just add that, you know, thinking about the innovation perspective and uh, on the recommendation of embedding educator case managers, I mean, this is really a critical step um, in primary care currently um, is over capacity and um, simply creating the recommendations and pushing them down to primary care without adding a resource. This is time intensive care. We don't have enough primary care providers in the system to deliver this kind of comprehensive respiratory care uh, through nurse practitioners and physicians. We need other health, uh, health providers to do that. And uh, the CRE group is the group that can do it. I'll just I'll just add to that in terms of um, innovation. Um, I think a part of innovation has to be technology. You know, we're everybody's really excited about Chat GPT and GPT four and what's coming with AI. Uh, but I think one of the things, and here I'll, I'll wear my hat as someone. In my my research is is very much focused on the use of technology to improve workflows and improve efficiencies. 
And I think that's something we really need to leverage as well, because again, we're always going to have a limited human resource pool, whether that's primary care docs or CREs. Um, if we can use leverage technology uh, tools that you know, we have a tool that we built called the electronic asthma management system. And what we showed was that uh, complex tasks like, you know, determining a patient's asthma control, getting them on the right drugs, figuring out what those drugs are, what those doses are, and getting them a personalized asthma action plan so that they're empowered to self-manage their disease. That would take a family doctor about half an hour to do. That's half an hour they don't typically have on a busy day. But when you leverage a technology like this EAMS tool, that can be done in three minutes because it's done by computer algorithms. So I think this is another really important piece of where we need to go. That same CRE, we can make a much stronger argument if that person can see 40 patients in a day rather than 10, 20 patients in a day because they have a technology that they can leverage to improve their workflows. Same with primary care docs, same with pharmacists. So let's not forget the technology piece and that is only improving and becoming more sophisticated. One of the, uh, one of the first things that uh, Jeff and I discussed when we, when we first had our chat was the need for education, not only for the asthma patient, but for the asthma patient's family and their partners. None of us really understand what to do during an asthma attack. I, I was talking to Gary and he said that uh, one evening Amanda had an asthma attack. And again, he's a paramedic. And he said, I knew what to do, but I didn't know what to do because it was Amanda. We need to expand the education so it's not just the patient that understands their symptoms and what to do to get them through the next few minutes or half an hour or an hour but also their families and their partners need to be educated as well. And the patient, we patients have to learn to advocate for ourselves. We have to stop hiding our symptoms. We have to start telling people, I'm not feeling well, I'm wheezy, give me a few minutes, let me use my buffer and maybe I'll be okay. But I, I think the whole education thing is something that, that we also need to take a look at. That's I a great agree. Point, Ian. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go I ahead. agree, Ian. I just want to um, I, I want to completely emphasize the role of education. Uh, just to uh, put a pin in what you just said, we have certified respiratory educators, and an uh, important part of the role is just that. But also, we refer to we refer to them in the best care program as educator case managers because it's around education, it's around skills development, it's around wrapping um, various elements of care that include not just the biology of the asthma that's the problem, but what are the social uh, determinants of health that may be impacting on asthma control. And so to look at a broader sort of biopsychosocial model. Uh, so we think about them as educator case managers um, to indicate the more comprehensive nature of what they're doing. They're also helping to make recommendations to providers about what is the best management uh, that's currently available. Does your patient need a biologic doctor or would they benefit from adding this inhaler or switching this inhaler? And so, um, um, it is a it is a broad role. I'll just if I could just jump in very quickly to support that as well. And just 
looking, going back to what Ian was saying around uh, the role that uh, we, the responsibility that we all have to make sure that not just the patient is educated, but their support system, their family members are, that's something that we take very uh, seriously at Asthma Canada as well. So we do have certified respiratory educators that we work with directly, and we have an asthma and allergy helpline that's available to any patients and family members as well. So it's important, I think, to look at, you know, this is all um, the, the, you know, the saying, uh, it's a it takes a village sort of thing, um, you know, that there are so many different parts of the system and that patient organizations like ours play a role in that as well in supporting. So we're here not just to advocate um, to ensure that the system has proper resources to handle those needs, but we're also here to help provide them as well. Thank you so much for that, Jeff. We have just a couple of minutes left um, in our discussion and some a couple of good questions that have come in. If you do have any questions, send them in now. We'll try and get to as many as we can. One that I wanted to, um, that I thought was really good and is unfortunately uh, relevant to many is that, you know, there's so many people who don't have primary care. And this question is from uh, Dr. Susan Wasserman, who is part of this uh, steering group that led to the recommendations that we've heard about today. Um, and basically, you know, the question or the point being made is that, you know, what do we do for the so many people out there who lack access to primary care and who have to rely on the emergency room, um, you know, for things like that? How do we, is there a way to incorporate CREs at that level to sort of recognize and, uh, you know, a system almost of triage for that kind of uh, situation? I think Susan is asking the question and she knows that it's a very difficult question to try to answer. Um, it, it's a growing problem um, in Ontario and I think across Canada that uh, you know, patients um, have lost access to their primary care provider. Primary care is the primary access. It's the way that people um, get into the rest of the system. It creates a big challenge. I wish I had a good answer for, um, you know, what is the solution? But I think we, you know, as um, as scientists, as clinicians, as policymakers, we need to be thinking about one, what some of those solutions might be. I mean, one of the um, ideas that um, Sean Aaron has used um, in Ottawa to primarily for research, but there may be clinical applications would be to use technologies like IVR to target specific or interactive voice response uh, telephone systems to target specific areas looking for people that may not have a primary care provider that may have a need and then to create opportunities for them to uh, come into specific clinics to uh, encourage primary care docs uh, to accept people that are unattached or to provide resources to primary care docs so that they could deliver uh, complex respiratory care with the support of an educator case manager, for example, so as not to um, add uh, a lot of additional burden. Um, but I don't have a solution. I wish I did. Uh, but we are trying to be creative and thinking through what are some of the options. No, I'll add to that. Sorry. You know, to, Susan, it's... <laughs> The, the patient who doesn't have a family dog bounces uh, to through to walk-ins, to the eMERGE, um, and everywhere they go, they get a script. But the one place they always go to fill that script is to their pharmacy. And I'm going to come back to the role of the pharmacist for every patient, patient who has a family dog, patient who doesn't have a family dog. 
most patients have a pharmacist that they deal with or a place that they go to. Um, this is an underutilized resource, you know, and I'll come back to it. Health, primary care health system reform will take time. It'll take years because we have to train more family docs. And that training cycle is, is already long and it might get a year longer. And that's a, you know, that's the subject for another discussion, but um, it, it takes time to, to bring those people into the workforce. Uh, so let's leverage the people that are already in the workforce. And we're doing that to some extent with, with minor ailments already across the country. Every province is adopting minor ailments um, scope of practice for pharmacists. Uh, why don't we take that a step further and empower them to help with chronic diseases as well? They already do things like they'll flag me if my patient has come in for too many ventilants over a certain period of time. Many of them will take that initiative and say, hey, doc, is this is this okay with you? Should you see this patient? They already have some of that knowledge and those skills and they play that role. They, in some ways, they're the gatekeeper because they're the ones who know based on that pattern of filling prescriptions, which patients are in trouble. So let's not forget the pharmacist. They may be a very important, more immediate part to this solution. I just want to add a little bit to that. I think one of the things I hope folks that are listening on this, you know, sort of don't walk away with the fact that, you know, pharmacists, I think are very important, but it has to be part of a chronic disease management strategy. Asthma is an episodic disease, but it's a chronic disease that that's a lifetime. And so pharmacists are going to play a role. Uh, emergency room physicians are going to play a role, CRE is going to play a role, but we have to develop a system that you can plug and play and that patients get put into it and that they're put into a system that just does not treat them episodically. Um, you know, pharmacist care is definitely one one solution of that. Uh, Susan, you asked the question regarding, you know, the ER physicians. I think one of the things we don't do well and things we have to work on and we're moving towards that in the electronic medical record world is communication. Oftentimes patients come to the emergency department, you don't even know that they've been there. I don't even know they've been there, they're my patients. And we need to work on that communication and we have the technologies to what Samir spoke about uh, to help make that happen. And so we just need to make sure that we it, it's a chronic disease and we have to build a chronic disease system for them. Thank you so much for that. Um, there was one comment that just came in that I'll flag, and we're, we're almost at time, so um, I'll quick comment, and then we'll sort of maybe have some closing remarks. But one of the uh, comments that came in was just highlighting the inspired COPD program based in Nova Scotia. So basically a, a program where people who have COPD can be enrolled, and they basically have sort of, you know, um, access to uh, certified respiratory educators, a phone number that they can call, someone who comes to their home to do outreach. So basically like a chronic care case manager. And I think the idea here being that, you know, there's um, there's models in place for, for other respiratory diseases. Perhaps this is something that could be applied to asthma care as well. Um, perhaps I'll, you know, we're, we're, we have like two minutes left. So one maybe really quick question. Um, there was someone that also commented um, asking about, you know, this whole question about pharmacists. Um, and then this idea that, you know, the more you get pharmacists to do, the less time they have to educate patients. But is there perhaps a role for more prescribing or connections for e-consults with, with CREs? Could CREs perhaps play a bit more of that role? Could we try and, and increase their scope of practice? Uh, perhaps um, one or more of you want to weigh in in the next minute or so on that one. I'm, I'm not sure that, that I understand the question, Carly, so I'll like pass it over to one of my colleagues. So I think CREs, uh, if you're asking about ex expanding their scope of practice, mean being giving them prescribing rights. I think that's uh, again of a, a bigger, you know, uh, a longer issue and, and a long-term 
play, which I think is not an unreasonable thing to think of. But again, as I say, like, you know, um, having this the system work for the patient, you come to emergency department, whether you have or you don't have a family physician, uh, being able to access that CRE to at least get the fundamentals uh, in play and having a system with the CRE needs to lean on a physician or a pharmacist to help them with some of the prescriptions. We can do that now. I mean, that can happen right away. And that's what I think we need to walk away from this is that change is, is you know, needs to be done. We have a system that's under, uh, you know, under stress. And we have, I think, very, you know, you know, usable tools and, and strategies that can help, you know, change the outcomes for people like Amanda and other folks that live with asthma across the country. Yeah, a quick comment. I mean, in the for the best care and primary care program, we have created a partnership between the nurse practitioner, physician, and the certified respiratory educator. So in that model, the physician is still the prescriber, but is supported by um, the certified educator case manager. Thank you so much for that. Wanting to be respectful of everyone's time and just noting that it is two o'clock and our, our time um, has officially run out, but I wanted to thank all of the panels for being here. I think in, in particular, Ian, um, I know that it's very difficult for you to share your daughter's story, but just so important. So just thank you again for being here, for sharing your, your perspective. Um, and certainly a story that I think many of us will be thinking about in the days and weeks ahead. So thank you everyone for being here and for sharing in this really vital discussion today. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Just quickly, everybody, the video, this is video recorded. It will be available shortly. Um, you'll be also be able to download it on your um, uh, podcast of choice. Other than that, have a wonderful day. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks to Carly as well.